The trial of the century had begun. The accused, the leaders of Israel, the high priests, the Pharisees, and the elders of Israel. The accusation declared, Did you never read the scriptures? Matthew 21, 42. The testimony of the witnesses, Moses, the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, the 70 disciples that were sent, and finally the Lord himself, recorded in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Now would come the formal verdict against the accused. As pictured in the parable of the marriage feast, the charge was Israel's rejection of God the Father and his offer of the kingdom through his son. The trial was almost over, but for the nation of Israel and its people, the real trial was about to begin. Welcome back to the Internet Bible Institute's class on the study of Matthew and the Olivet Discourse. You'll remember that on that definitive Tuesday of Passion Week, when Israel's spiritual leaders and people rejected God's king and kingdom, the Lord cried out on that day God's indictment against his beloved nation when he said in Matthew 23, Verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. And ye would not. That's a crucial phrase in this passage. Israel was guilty of rejecting the invitation of their God and king. The Lord justified the guilty verdict through two key phrases and their verbs. The first verb is gathered in the phrase, how often would I have gathered thy children? This expressed God's ongoing offers of grace. God did this through the use of the imperfect tense. (laughs) Yes, I know. Grammar again. Servant after servant had been sent to Israel, including God's own son. Now, God did this to prevent anyone from claiming injustice, saying that God gave them only one opportunity to accept him. Now, the second verb in there is, ye would not. It's a cumulative aorist. This reflects the totality of the repeated rejections of him. 
You see, the rejection of Jesus as God's son who offered the kingdom was the climax of all Israel's past rejections. This was the time for their final answer. Without a thought of the consequences, Israel had passed the point of no return. And now we come to the fourth step of the trial, the judgment. Now the judge delivers a two-phase judgment against them in Matthew chapter 23, verses 38 and 39. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Two-phase judgment. Your house is left unto you desolate. That's a reference to the temple. These words were a clear declaration of the temple's soon destruction and the land's desolation, for it would become, as one observer noted, a solitary, lonely, and uninhabited land. This judgment applied directly to the generation that rejected the Lord, for we read in verse 36, Jesus saying, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon, notice, this generation. All of these things will come upon that generation that was there, that witnessed him and rejected the Lord. Now, please be very careful not to go beyond what the Bible teaches. Jesus Christ was not condemning all Jewish people for all time. However, the consequences of that rejection regarding Jerusalem and the land have continued for centuries and certainly have affected Jewish people even to this day. Now notice phase two of the judgment. Ye shall not see me henceforth till ye say. Phase two of this judgment would affect all Jewish people from that day to this. As a national group, they would not see. Now, perhaps a better word using today's language would be they would not know or perceive the Lord until the Great Tribulation. Again, we must be very careful not to go beyond what the Bible teaches. God still offers personal salvation to Jewish individuals as well as to Gentiles. But Israel as a nation awaits a final offer of restoration. That final offer of restoration will be extended at the end of the tribulation. Now, the Apostle Paul, remember, he was a Jewish Pharisee of that time. He clarified the second phase of the judgment, and he did that over in Romans 11. There he refutes the common view among so many people even today. That common view is that God has cursed the Jewish people and he's cast them off forever. Now please, turn to Romans 11. I want you to see Paul's answer to that very wrong attitude. Over in Romans 11, 
Paul responds to this erroneous belief by asking a question. Notice in verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? Has God cast them away? God forbid is his answer. That answer is an emphatic phrase. Now, we read in our English translation, God forbid. Literally, in the Greek, it is, may it never be. Yes, Israel has stumbled. But then Paul says, have they stumbled that they should fall? Look at the answer in verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Again, God forbid, or may it never be. But rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. In other words, this time God is using for Israel's to have a temporary spiritual blindness. It's a time to reach out to the Gentiles with salvation and the offer to become part of the future kingdom. This time is only going to last, though, as we're told in verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel. Notice carefully now, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. You see, phase two of God's judgment on Israel, it's not going to last forever. Now go back to Matthew 23 and verse 39. For I say unto you, you shall not see me, perceive me, know me henceforth. See the word till ye shall say? Literally, in the Greek, the word till, translated in our Bible, means from now until. From now until. In other words, Matthew 23, 39 could really have been read in a more literal sense by reading it. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth from now until you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Thus, at some future point, of time. The national blindness will end as Israel cries out to the Lord for deliverance. Now, at the second giving of the law, Moses prophesied about this future restoration time in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verses 1 through 4. So please join me and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessings and the curse, which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call to them to mind among all the nations, whether the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return or turn back to the Lord thy God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart, with all thine soul, that thine, then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity 
and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from notice all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee if any of thine be driven out unto the uttermost parts of heaven from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee and from thence will he will he fetch thee and the Lord will bring thee into the land read part of verse 5 there that's important too you see Israel and church age believers need to understand that God disciplines his discipline is intended to bring restoration not destruction this second phase of the judgment is the key to interpreting the Olivet Discourse Although the Olivet Discourse can encourage church-age believers as they face daily trials and also gives us a glimpse into the future, it's very important to understand that the Olivet Discourse's primary purpose is to help the Jewish people know God and to understand His plan for Israel. At this point, the Lord had ended his public teaching ministry to Israel. And now, after being in the temple, the Lord and his disciples are leaving the city. They walk through the east gate and up to the Mount of Olives, Mount Olivet. They are going to learn of God's gracious presence. But as they're with the Lord and he's with them, something else has just occurred. For the nation of Israel... God's presence has left the nation. As they walked up to that hill, Jesus Christ, God himself, has left Jerusalem and the blessing upon it, for, but instead now will come the judgment. For within 40 years, the judgment was carried out. What had happened within 40 years? The worship had ended at the temple. The temple itself was destroyed. The people were dispersed. God's protective hand over the land of Israel was removed. This allowed the Gentiles to overrun Jerusalem and to control it until Jesus Christ returns. Now, we don't know if the spiritual leaders fully understood and recognized this as a judgment as it was proclaimed to them by the Lord. But we do know that the disciples would soon understand that when Christ used the words, your house is desolate, is left unto you desolate, he was referring to the temple right before their eyes. Now, as they were leaving the city and admiring this magnificent temple, the Lord informed them that not one stone of it would be left standing upon another at the time of the judgment. You know, we could almost sense the disciples' impatience. They wanted to get the Lord away from the crowd because think of the questions that they wanted to ask him. They wanted to know, when is this going to happen? And what about their dreams of a kingdom?
at this point, we should consider the temple that the disciples looked upon and note how it was destroyed. Ancient historian Josephus described the magnificent temple structure in minute detail. He tells us that individual stones were 60 feet long, and each pillar supporting the porches was made, in his words, of a single stunning white marble stone, 37 feet high. Now, during the Roman siege, uh, Titus had ordered the demolition of the city and the temple. After six days of battering the walls, only slight impressions had been made, according to Josephus in his wars on the Jews. It took tremendous effort on the part of the Roman army to obey the order given to them about destruction. But when the destruction ended, all that remained were the foundation stones, some of those dated from the first temple. Now, the construction work of 80 years of that temple was destroyed only six years after it was completed. So, in other words, the temple took 80 years to build, and in its completed state, it lasted only six years before the judgment of God came upon the Jewish nation. Hence, the words of Matthew 23, 2 were literally fulfilled, where Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Every stone would be thrown down. I think it's good for us to remind ourselves that when we look at church buildings today and see the edifices that men create, that they are only temporal buildings dedicated for the Lord's use. If we drift from that purpose and focus upon the building rather than its purpose, there is no guarantee they will remain. Now, Charles Spurgeon reminds us, and I quote, Let us only reckon that to be substantial which comes from God and is God's work. The things which are seen are only temporal. End quote. Now, let's return to the questions upon the mount. As Jesus and his disciples left the temple site and they headed along the road to Bethany, they stopped to rest on the Mount of Olives. We see that in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, a better translation of world is age. Uh, it has kind of changed since 1611, and age is really the correct word. So, what, what, when, and what shall be the signs? This mount is historically and prophetically significant, for it would witness the ascension of the Lord in just a few weeks' time. And at a future date, he will return to it in the exact same manner as he left. But this time he will come as the conquering king of Israel. In a parallel passage in Mark, Mark 13, verse 3, it tells us that only the inner four disciples were present on the mount with the Lord at this point. That's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They were with the Lord on the mount that day. 
Before them was the city. As they sat looking at that great city before them, with that shining, magnificent temple, they asked the Lord two questions that were recorded in Matthew 24, verse 3, that I have just read. Those questions that continue to be asked to this day. Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign? Now, literally, the sign which distinguishes thy coming and of the end of the world or age. Their questions give us insight into their thinking in light of what Christ had just said and the judgment proclaimed upon Israel, as well as their understanding, by the way, of prophecies, how they relate to the temple, the Messiah, and the end of the age. You see, Jewish people knew of two ages or taught two ages in the era of the disciples. The first age was the pre-Messianic age. That's the age leading up to the coming of the Messiah. And then the Messianic age is when the Messiah would rule and have his kingdom on earth. The book of Revelation gives us additional information telling us that that Messianic age will be a thousand years. Now, it is probable that their thinking was based upon the prophet Zechariah's sequential description of three sequential events. The first event was the raising of Jerusalem by foreign nations. That would happen in 70 AD. The second would be the Lord's coming to destroy the invading nations, Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 8. And the third event would be the inauguration of his millennial kingdom. And that's recorded in Zechariah 14, verses 9 through 11. The Jewish people believe that immediately after these three events, the door to the Messianic kingdom age would open and their covenants with God would be fulfilled. It would be fulfilled as Israel entered into her eternal blessing. Now note, the disciples were not merely curious about the future. You see, these events held personal significance to each of them. You see, they earnestly desired to cease being mere fishermen and serve the Lord in the positions of authority that he would give them. Positions that he promised them earlier in Matthew chapter 19. So if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 19 with me, we'll see the promised positions for the disciples. And in Matthew chapter 19, let's look at verse 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? A reasonable answer, they had forsaken all for him. And Jesus says unto them, Verily I say unto you, verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, in other words, when the kingdom comes, you shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The regeneration as I teach elsewhere, is really the Messianic age. When Christ is sitting on his throne, the throne of David, he says these disciples will also sit on 12 thrones and they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. 
it would only be natural for them to be eagerly anticipating the rule of the Messiah in the kingdom age. That would fulfill all that he had been training them to do. It was not until Pentecost of Acts 2, however, that they began to realize that there was another age, the mystery of the church, and the indefinite gap of time between phase one of the judgment and phase two of the judgment before the kingdom could come. We now know that the realization of that positions of authority would follow a gap of at least 2,000 years for the disciples to wait. 2,000 years. It's very important for us to understand the purpose of and the need for this gap of almost 2,000 years before this judgment is complete. Unfortunately, many people through the years, and even today, do not understand and recognize this gap of time. You see, they believe that the events of Matthew 24 were fulfilled in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple and the nation. They believe that the events of A.D. 70 marked the beginning of the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom began in 70 A.D. They believe the kingdom has continued from then until now, but they believe it is an invisible, spiritual kingdom within the hearts of men and not a literal physical kingdom. These people are called preterists, from the Latin word meaning past. According to their teaching, only Christ's second coming remains to be fulfilled. In other words, in terms of prophecy, that's it. That's the only prophecy is the second coming of Christ and then begins the new heavens and new earth. They arrive at this conclusion by identifying the temple of the Lord's time in Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2, as being the same temple spoken of in verse 15, the one that will experience the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel in Daniel 9, 27. So let's, let's look at these two temples, if you will. Uh, chapter 24 of Matthew, verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Let's call that Temple One. And his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. Okay? And then Jesus says, See ye all these things, verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then in verse 15, they say this is the same temple, still Temple One. Verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, Whoso readeth, let him understand. So you see, they equate those two verses, verse 1 with verse 15, as the exact same temple. Thus, they believe that the destruction and the desolation of verse 15 prophecies were fulfilled in A.D. 70. And the tribulation took place during the time of the Roman assault on Jerusalem. A second view is called the Futurist. I am one, and I hope you are too. We believe the temple of verse 1 and 2 is Israel's second temple, the one that was built by Zerubbabel and enlarged by Herod only to be destroyed in A.D. 70. In other words, Solomon built the first temple, 
it was destroyed Babylonians. Zerubbabel built the second temple and Herod enlarged it and the Romans destroyed it in AD 70. Furthermore, we believe the temple of verse 15 is in the future. It is what we call the tribulation temple, a temple that will be rebuilt, that would be the third temple, if you will, that will be desecrated by the Antichrist. There are people in Israel today that have all the materials ready to build a temple. And so they are looking for a future temple. And according to the scriptures in Matthew 24:15, that will temple will, that will be rebuilt during the tribulation will be desecrated by the Antichrist. Preterists believe there are only two temples in scripture, Solomon's temple and the temple built by Zerubbabel and added to by Herod. Futurists believe there are four temples of scripture. There is Solomon's temple, the first one. Zerubbabel's temple, and let's call it Zerubbabel slash Herod's temple of Matthew 24, 1 and 2, the one that was destroyed in 70 AD, and the tribulation temple described in Daniel 9, 27 in Matthew 24, 15. And finally, there will be a millennial temple described in Ezekiel chapter 40. So I hope you followed that. Futurist, I'm a futurist, believe in four temples, from Solomon's to the Millennial Temple. Preterists believe in two temples, Solomon's Temple and the one destroyed, Zerubbabel's Temple destroyed in 70 AD, and no future temples at all. Now, for simplicity, I'm going to refer to the Zerubbabel Herod's Temple as the second temple. And the Temple of Daniel uh, 927 Matthew 24:15 as the tribulation temple. Because of the debate over whether there are one or two temples in Matthew 24, I believe it's important to stop and consider why preterists are wrong. You see, their view and what they hold to affects much of their doctrines. And we have to be very careful because this is a crucial passage. I've said before, your understanding of Matthew 24 and 25 will often route you on two different paths of interpretation of Scripture. It will affect how you view prophecy and God's plan for both the current earth and the new heavens and new earth. So let's, we've got to study this because failure to distinguish between these temples will seriously affect your ability to interpret and understand the Olivet Discourse that we're going to be looking at in the next two lessons, but also in much of your view of prophecy. Now, Dr. Randall Price, he's a Bible scholar, he's an archaeologist, he's also a futurist. He noted six major differences between the second temple and the Tribulation Temple. I'd like to go through these briefly and um, review them with you so you can understand why I hold to four temples ultimately and that the Tribulation Temple is still to be built. Okay, here's his first reason. The Tribulation Temple is said to be only desecrated by the Antichrist and not destroyed according to Matthew 24:15 and Revelation 11:2. By contrast, the second temple, the one we read in Matthew 24, verses 1-2, was completely destroyed with not one stone left standing on another. See, it wasn't just desecrated, it was destroyed. 
Our second reason. The tribulation temple desecration will be a sign or a signal for Jews to escape destruction by fleeing to the mountains. Matthew 24, 16 through 18. Now we're going to be studying that in our continuing ongoing lessons that will follow this one. We will see that when they flee to the mountains, they will be preserved, Matthew 24, 22, and ultimately experience the promised redemption of Luke 21 and 28 and enter into the millennial age. By contrast, the destruction of the second temple, as we've been studying, was a judgment with no escape for either them or their children. Remember Luke 19.44a says the children also will be destroyed. And it will be a judgment because they did not recognize the time of the Messiah's coming. Luke 19 verse 44. Dr. Price's third reason. The generation of Jewish people that are alive at the time of the tribulation temple's desecration they can expect the Messiah's coming immediately after the tribulation. Look at Matthew 24. Again, reminder, verse 15, When therefore ye shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Then it says, Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. All right? Let them... Uh, let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. Woe unto them that are with child, to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Okay, when the desolation occurs at the temple, when the abomination of desolation occurs, uh, they're to flee. And then verse 21, for then, notice that, the time element, for then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time no nor ever shall be except those days shall be shortened there shall no flesh be saved but for the elect's sake the chosen of God's sake those days shall be shortened you see that the generation of Jewish people that are alive at the time of the abomination they can expect that almost immediately after will come the tribulation it will come immediately after it be the great tribulation. It's going to happen within their lifetime, Matthew 24, 34. It occurs after the great tribulation now occurs after the abomination. Now, yes, there will be three and a half years of tribulation before that, but the great tribulation, and this we'll see in our next lesson, refers to the great tribulation. It's going to be within their lifetime. By contrast, the generations of Jews that were alive at the time of the Second Temple's destruction died long ago. In fact, nearly 2,000 years have already passed without the Messiah coming. That hardly sounds like, for then shall occur. Our fourth reason. The Tribulation Temple's desecration cited in Matthew 24:15 refers to Daniel 9:27 indicates that the one who desecrates this temple will himself be destroyed by the Lord and his armies 2 Thessalonians 2:8 and Revelation 19:20 in other words after committing the abomination of desolation he will be destroyed by contrast the second temple was destroyed but not desecrated in 70 AD furthermore the Roman Emperor Vespasian ordering the destruction, his son Titus, 
who carried out the destruction, neither of them were destroyed immediately, but they returned to Rome in triumph, carrying the vessels from the temple. Vespasian lived another eight years. Titus lived 11 years after the temple's destruction, hardly being destroyed immediately. Fifth reason, the time immediately after the tribulation of Matthew 24, 29 will bring Israel's repentance according to Zechariah 12, 12 and Matthew 24, 30. Let's look at 24, 30. Well, 29, immediately after the tribulation, the great tribulation of those days, shall the sun be dark and the moon shall not give her light. The stars shall fall from heaven. The powers of heaven shall be shaken. There shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And we'll see in the next verse about a trumpet. This will usher in the millennium with its millennial temple indicated in Ezekiel 40 through 48 and Zechariah 40, 14. So we have that this tremendous event is very clear after the tribulation. By contrast, the time following the destruction of the second temple did not bring repentance, but only saw a hardening that happened to Israel. That hardening will last until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, according to Romans 11.25 that we've read. We still have 2,000 years have gone since that time to today, and we're still counting. A sixth reason. The following conditions will be a reality during the time of the tribulation temple. Obviously, it's going to exist during the tribulation. That's what it says here. There will have been a global regathering of the Jewish people to Israel from one end of the sky to the other, according to Matthew 24, 31, Mark 13, 27. And the entire world will witness the Messiah's return to rescue Israel. We've just read that in Matthew 24. This accords with the prophesied end-time battle for Jerusalem recorded in Zechariah 12 through 14 where it tells us all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it, Zechariah 12.3. By contrast, the destruction of the second temple and the assault on Jerusalem predicted in Luke 21.20 was waged by the armies of one empire, Rome, not a global conglomeration of empires, one empire, Rome, and resulted in the scattering of the Jewish people total opposite of what we read uh, for during the tribulation. So you see, after considering these distinct differences, we conclude that the Bible reveals two different assaults on Jerusalem that are going to be separated by more than 2,000 years. Therefore, the temple of Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2, and the temple of Matthew 25, 4:15 are two distinct different temples. Another significant argument against the preterist view is that the disciples understood the kingdom to be yet future, and they understood it as literal earthly kingdom where they would rule and reign with Christ. Acts 1.6, they asked, is that this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? This wasn't an invisible spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men. No, it was a restoration of the kingdom that they knew to be
beyond the earth, a restoration of the divinic kingdom in the land of Israel. Recognizing the different interpretations of the temple in Matthew 24 and how that can only not only cause division in churches, but can cause significant different understanding of God's plan and prophecy. I think it's important to note a warning given by the Lord to his disciples here in Matthew 24. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 4, the Lord told his disciples to take heed. Notice now, this is right at the start of the whole under, uh, passage on, uh, on uh, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. This is all prophecy, and right at the very beginning, the Lord says to the disciples, take heed. Now that word means to be carefully discerning, to perceive or discover the truth so that no one would be able to mislead them, the disciples, and cause them to stray from the truth. This was just as crucial in the early days of the church as it is in our day. The false teachings of our day, such as the purpose-driven, the emergent, and new Calvinist movements, would never have been able to deceive so many believers if they had been taught to discern truth from error through the study of scriptures. For the last 50 years or more, churches primarily have been focusing on so-called relevant issues and worship style preferences instead of the solid word of God in its entirety. Yes, from Genesis to Revelation, not just the Gospels, but Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is profitable for us to study. Little attention has been given to the role of the Holy Spirit in helping individuals understand and apply God's word to their lives. So that now uh, they don't know what to do. They don't know what pleases the Lord. The net result, especially among the 20 to 40 year old believers, is a complete lack of discernment. Now, yes, there are exceptional young Christian millennial, uh, 20 to 40 year olds. And they are walking with the Lord and they know his will. But they're the true minority. The vast majority of the 20 to 40 year olds, what we call Generation Y or millennial Christians, seemingly have a complete lack of discernment. You see, anything that sounds biblical and does not offend a politically correct society is acceptable to them. Consequently, uh, churches have looked around and they've seen that many of the young people have left them or that the young people don't seem to want their teaching. So what they say is, you know what we have to do is we have to uh, choose a teaching that's acceptable to them. And many are saying in-depth Bible teaching will drive young people away. I hear pastors tell me this. And yet I see that in the movements today in which they're claiming to give in-depth Bible teaching, young people are coming. And yet I still hear pastors say that they need to put the cookies on the lower shelf for their people. Oh, I'd suggest that it's better to make your people stretch to the higher shelves and grow than to become atrophied. 
Now, I've read several books by New Calvinists, several books by emergent writers. They all start out the same way. They describe the church that they were in. It usually is a fundamental conservative Bible teaching church as by label. And they said they're tired of getting the milk of the word. And so they're reaching out. They're looking for the place that will be teaching the true word of God. You know, here's a sad thing. When I came back from Britain and I visited many churches, not just supporting churches, but other churches. And in these other churches, I found they were doing exactly what the emergence and the new Calvinists are saying they were doing. It's milk of the word. That's the lower shelf. But I'd suggest that our task, the task of the local church, is to teach people to understand the scriptures, to grow them, mature them, so they can walk with the Lord and serve him. I suggest that the task of the local church is the same today as it was at its beginning almost 2,000 years ago. Our task is to equip the saints to go out and witness by their lives, by their words and their actions of the resurrected Jesus Christ. You know, the disciples obeyed the Lord's parting instructions and did just that. And as the result was recorded in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. Ah, the church should concentrate on doing its assignment, its assigned task. What are those tasks? Acts 2, verse 42, and chapter 5, verse 42 says to teach the word. Teach the word. Not about it in a general, vague way, in a devotional style, but to teach the word as it's written. Then we read in Acts 1.14 and 2.42, they are to be praying. How many people are in the prayer meeting? Do you attend your prayer meeting at your church? Next, Acts 2.42 and 46 tells us they are to worship, to give God his worth, to show that by coming and attending the services, showing he is worth coming to, to sing about, to praise, and to study what? His word. And we are to encourage one another, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And finally, then we are to go out into the world with the gospel in the workplace, where we shop, where we relax, where the unsaved are present. I believe we should leave the numbers to the Lord and just do our part faithfully. Don't worry if the church is getting smaller, as long as you are teaching and they are growing in your church. Yes, churches are getting smaller. We have to accept that. But the ones that will be blessed are those that are doing God's work in God's way. God will bring the people to those churches that are teaching the word who are seeking to learn the word of God. I believe our God can do that, don't you? Even in the world we live in. As we look into the prophecies of Matthew 24, we're going to have to recognize that there are two primary views for interpreting it. There's the preterist view and the futurist view. Again, the preterist believes that all prophecy was fulfilled by the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, with the exception of Christ's second coming. The futurists believe that with the exception of the rapture that marks the end of the church age, no prophetic events will take place during the time of the church. Prophetic events that have yet to be fulfilled will take place following the rapture. Now, however, during the latter days of the church age, there will be noticeable indications 
that the church age is drawing to its close. If you will, the stage is being set for the rapture and the prophetic events that will follow. When shall these things be? Now, while Matthew does not answer that question, Luke does, for both relate this event on Mount Olives. Matthew's prime purpose, you remember, was to portray Jesus of Nazareth as the future Messiah King, the one who will rule over the coming kingdom. While he's accurate in everything he presents, his purpose was not to record what does not directly relate to Jesus as Messiah King of Israel. God's judgment leading to the destruction of the temple in AD 70 held more significance for Luke. Why? Luke was a historian. Therefore, Luke covers the assault on Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, while Matthew leaps ahead at least 2,000 years and focuses on the future tribulation that will culminate with Israel's repentance and rescue by her Messiah King. At this point, I'd like to give a brief consideration of Luke's record of the assault on Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. All this adds and gives us better information of what happened and really gives us, if you will, the rest of the story. AD 70 marked not only the end of the temple worship and Israel's presence in the land, but also began the beginning of these things that Jesus had prophesied on Mount Olivet. Remember, the first question is, when will these things happen? Luke gives us the answer in Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. Beginning with that, uh, turn, if you would, with me to Luke 19, and let's look at verse 41. And when he was come near, you may recall, this is Palm Sunday, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because, here's the reason, thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Here we have a prophecy given on by the Lord on Palm Sunday, where he clearly said, if you had just realized, if you had just known your day, this day, this belongs to peace. Notice they were thinking peace. They would hope for peace. Peace from the Romans, just peace in general. Instead, he prophesizes destruction for them. And then he, after giving them a description of the destruction, he says that the reason was because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. This word visitation is very important to understand. It means much more than a friendly visit by someone who came to visit. Israel's day of visitation, we've just read, had come, and having made her decision to reject God, he will respond with punishment. That's the meaning of the word visitation in this passage. 
In verse 42, Jesus informs them that the peace that they desired through the Messiah would be, notice, hid from thine eyes. Instead of peace, war would come to Jerusalem. God's instrument of judgment would be the Roman army. Now, Rome had directly ruled Jerusalem 663 B.C. when the Pharisees invited Roman General Pompey to assist them, get that, to assist them in dealing with warring factions within Israel's spiritual leadership. In other words, they had wars within their own leadership, and they said to Rome, come, please help us settle this out. By A.D. 66 now, that's nearly 130 years later, Roman rule would become so oppressive that the Jewish people would initiate the first of three rebellions against the Roman overlords. These uprisings would bring Roman general Vespasian and his son Titus to attempt to quell the uprisings and to reestablish stability once again in the land of Israel. The confrontation of the first Jewish-Roman revolt began in A.D. 67, as Rome's army moved down from Galilee and eventually reached the center of the rebellion in the well-fortified city of Jerusalem. Now, back in Rome, Nero had been deposed and Vespasian had returned now to Rome to become emperor. Therefore, he left his son Titus to deal with the rebellion in Jerusalem. Contrary to his father's advice, Titus declared to order a siege against the city. Although shut in and surrounded, Jerusalem's inhabitants resisted the attack and the siege for nearly three years. By the spring of A.D. 70, Titus craftily granted permission for Jewish pilgrims throughout Israel to enter the city so they could observe the Passover feast. Remember, by law, all Jewish men had to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. This event, this Passover, was almost 40 years to the day since the Lord had declared the destruction of the temple and that generation. 40 day, years to the day of that prophecy. At the end of the Passover, Titus prevented anyone from leaving the city that was now filled with easily over a million people. Now his siege could be effective. It was Titus's hope that the famine that would come would end the stalemate and Jerusalem soon would surrender. After seven months further of resistance, however, Titus lost patience. He sought to end the siege now once and for all. He decided to breach the city walls. When those walls finally fell, the fighting began in earnest at the strategic Atonia Fortress overlooking the Temple Mount. With the successful occupation of the fortress, the seventh-month siege had ended. Only the temple remained to complete the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting. Records show that Titus did not want to destroy it. He wanted to occupy it and rededicate it to the emperor, who happened to be his father, and make it a Roman pantheon or a temple to Rome's false gods. But our God, the true God, had other plans. For somehow, 
God saw to it providentially that fire broke out during the assault on the temple compound. And in the end, the judgment Christ had declared was fulfilled. Look at verse 44. They shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. Not one stone upon another. See, God didn't want his temple to become a temple for Roman pagans. So God saw to it providentially that it was destroyed, that it fulfilled the prophecy of not one stone upon another, and significantly it served as a punishment to the nation of Israel. Punishment, always remember, designed to bring restoration. On the ninth of Av, 655 years after the destruction of the first temple, on the very same day of the month, the second temple was destroyed. That wasn't accidental. That was God's timing to have it on the same day of the year of the month, 655 years difference. Upon being offered a victor's crown to Titus, Titus reportedly refused it because he believed that the victory did not come through his own efforts. And this is a quote, but that he had merely lent his arms to God who had so manifested the wrath. According to Christ's words in Luke 19.44, God's wrathful judgment would be poured out upon Jerusalem and its inhabitants. They shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. Luke 19.44. Historical records confirm this. And I quote that record. The slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated mercy were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The number of the slain exceeded that of the slayers. The legionnaires had to clamber over heaps of dead to carry on the work of extermination. End quote. See, there was no fleeing to the mountains for this generation and these, their children. Remember, the preterist said, oh no, verse 15 of Matthew 24, that's the same temple. No, it's not. They were told to flee to the mountains in Matthew 24, 15. But here, they were destroyed. The description of Jerusalem being trodden down or trampled under the feet of the Gentiles well described that day. Look at Luke 21, verse 24. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. That's exactly what happened in 70 AD. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Without doubt, this was the Lord's reply to the disciples' question when they asked, When shall these things be? The Lord's prophecy of judgment in Luke concludes in chapter 21, verse 24, with the words foretelling how long Gentile domination of Jerusalem would last until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Remember, God controls timing. God knows when that time is. Just as the second temple was destroyed exactly on the same day of the year and month as that first temple was. 
Luke's statement of verse 24 marked the transition between the judgment upon Israel, the when, and the restoration phase. What shall be the sign of the coming and of the end of the age? We're going to return to Matthew in our next session and look into Christ's second coming and Israel's restoration at the end of the age. We're going to see what the tribulation will be like. And I can't urge you enough to be with us in our next class. For in that class, we're going to look at Matthew 24 in detail. Invite some friends. I'm sure they will find it extremely interesting and relevant to the world in which we live as we study the tribulation and the coming of Jesus Christ. Until next class time, I look forward to seeing you. May the Lord bless you mightily, and I'll see you either here or in the air. Israel.